What's up, everyone? I uh, hope you're doing well on this Saturday afternoon. If you're joining us live today, I'm here again with Dr. Josh Bowen. We're going to be talking about what we originally planned in the first live stream, which is kind of <laughs> looking at some aspects of the Old Testament um, from his perspective as an engineering scholar. Uh, if you missed the first conversation with Dr. Josh and I, or more of an interview, I encourage you to check that out. Really good. I've, I've heard really positive feedback from everyone on that. But here we are. We're going to talk about the Old Testament. How are you doing, Dr. Josh? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing really good. It's it's good to talk to you. I always, I always, I mean, we've only been selling the second time we've done this, but I've, I've always enjoyed talking to you. He's just a very yeah, laid back yeah. and straightforward guy. Doesn't seem like you have too much of an agenda, which I really appreciate. Just <laughs> kind of, I mean, I guess your only agenda is good scholarship, which is, you know, yeah, it's a pretty it's good, pretty good agenda. Um. So just to start off, could you talk a little bit, just in case someone doesn't know who you are, uh, just introduce yourself, who you are, what do you do, things like that? Sure, sure. So uh, Joshua Bowen, um, I run uh, the Digital Hammurabi YouTube channel. Actually, my wife runs it. I participate in it. Um, but I got my PhD from Johns Hopkins University in uh, Assyriology with a minor in Hebrew Bible. Uh, I got a THM in uh, Old Testament studies from Capital Bible Seminary. And I got my bachelor's degree from Liberty University. But, uh, you know, basically Sumerian, Akkadian, Hebrew, Aramaic, these are sort of, I like linguists, uh, linguistics. So um, on the channel, we try to take all that and uh, present the ancient Near East, the Hebrew Bible uh, to people that maybe haven't had the time to go to school and you know, learn about that stuff formally. Uh, we try to present it in sort of a palatable fashion, something that, you know, makes sense to non-specialists uh, and be a resource for people in case, you know, they have specific questions about the ancient world or about the Hebrew Bible, those sorts of things. So that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, encourage everyone to go subscribe to the Digital Hammurabi YouTube channel. There should be a link in the description. Lots of good stuff. Um, so just to start off, before we dive into some Old Testament things, I know your, your, your primary field is Assyriology, which I mean, I guess when people usually talk to you, it's usually not about that. It's almost always about the Bible, I feel like, <laughs> from what I've seen. So just talk a little bit about like what Assyriology is and what like your, your specialty, what you got your doctorate in is about. Yeah, it's probably best to talk about it through the Hebrew Bible. So you know, when I when I started seminary, you know, everybody learns Greek. And so I was, you know, it took six years of Greek there, um, but immediately started taking Hebrew as well. And because uh, I, I love the Old Testament, I love Hebrew. I started taking Aramaic and I took Targumic Aramaic and, you know, Biblical Aramaic, all these other things. And um, started taking Akkadian, which is another Semitic language. So Hebrew, Aramaic, you know, these Akkadian, these are Semitic languages. And uh, when I was ready to get ready to graduate, um, coming up on graduation, a professor of mine said, look, you know, if you want to be a top tier Old Testament scholar, you need to go study Akkadian. Um, so I applied to Johns Hopkins. And when I did, I realized that it, it, so Akkadian is East Semitic. Uh, so if you if you think about where ancient Iraq is, so the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, uh, Mesopotamia is in, you know, between the two rivers. So it's over there in ancient Iraq and, um, Northeastern Syria. And there's a whole series of cultures and a whole history from that area going back to, you know, we have written records going back to the late, um, fourth millennium BCE. So, uh, that's what I made my field of research. And at first it was to just become this great old Testament scholar. Ultimately it it was because I wanted to, you know, become a um, just a great ancient Near Eastern scholar. So I kept a minor in Hebrew Bible, uh, which, you know, was obviously great. And I took Hebrew every year with uh, Professor Ted Lewis and Colin McCarter. Took uh, biblical archaeology while I was there. Took regular archaeology while I was there. Um, but yeah, my 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 major is in Sumerian, actually. So I, I read. I can read. Sumerian. I wrote a book on um, uh, learning to read ancient Sumerian for beginners. Uh, so, you know, but there's a lot, a whole host of literature uh, amongst other things in Sumerian and Akkadian. And it really helps if, if you're interested in the Old Testament and studying it, you know, it really helps to know Akkadian and it really helps uh, Akkadian to know Sumerian. So that's mm -hmm. sort of what I did. 
Yeah, good stuff, man. Uh, Pedro in the live chat says your hair is looking good. So I guess we can start <laughs> off on a good note. Um, maybe one day I'll grow hair. Like, I like to keep the shorter hair. Uh, so, <laughs> so before we dive in specifically into some of the things we're looking at in the Old Testament, I'm curious, just like in a broad sense, obviously the Old Testament is written over centuries and there's just all, there, it's just not, it's not like one complete book um in the sense of there's just all kinds of different things going on um what in a general sense how, what do you look at like how do you view the old testament yeah i think probably um you know because we don't have any of the autographs it can be very difficult i think for people to try to wrap their head around um when when this uh you know grouping was brought together into into its final form. Uh, so, yeah, because what what we have the earliest documents that we have, you know, come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm -hmm. and so because of that, it I think it's difficult for people to picture it. So when I think about the ancient, uh, sorry, when I think about the Hebrew Bible, the first thing I, I think about is an ancient Near Eastern text, right? It's an ancient Near Eastern document, um, series of documents. So, um. You know, the Pentateuch is something that's a little more complex, uh, but you know, these are these are ancient writings. Uh, probably, you know, it's not my specialty to date text. That's 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 a subfield all its own. Um, but you know, texts that go back to the eighth century, uh, stories that go back probably earlier. Uh, of course, that's debated um, how early those stories go. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a group of texts that. Uh, are brought together, were brought together in antiquity, edited together in such a way to uh, do something theologically. So, um, but I don't view them terribly differently than I would view any other ancient Near Eastern group of texts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, as we dive into this first section, I'm talking about kind of like the idea of like what what is biblical slavery. I know you've written a, a book on this topic, which is linked in the description for people. Feel free to share anything from that or encourage people to buy that. Um, so just to start off, as we look at some of these texts, we're going to be looking in the Pentateuch. And you talked about how the Pentateuch can be a little bit more complex. So could you just talk a little bit um, about what is the Pentateuch? How is it formed? Just like things along those lines. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I always do this on any of these topics, you know, if it's, if it's not my field of specialization, uh, specifically Pentateuchal studies is, uh, like there are some brilliant, brilliant minds that work in, um, in the formation of the Pentateuch. Uh, Dr. Joel Baden is going to be coming on our channel here this week coming up and he's, you know, a specialist um, in this. So, you know, if you, if you want more detail, tune in for that, but essentially you know, when you when you approach the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, particularly as you go through the book of Genesis, scholars from very early on recognize that there are problems. Um, there are doublets, so two stories that uh, both can't be right, you know, from a historical or from a narrative standpoint. Um, you have stories that seem to be doublets. They're not quite doublets. Um, you know, a story about uh, Abraham and his wife going down and saying, this is my sister, you know, not my wife. And this seems to happen again. And then with Isaac. Uh, so it, it's not that those things couldn't have happened more than once, but it's very suspicious. Um, and so what scholars began to theorize very early on without going into all the detail is that there were originally different sources, different, um, different, uh, sources, the word that I want to use, but like uh, the stories were told and brought together in a coherent source and one in uh, in one storyline, I guess you could say, and then in another storyline and then in another storyline, the same, a lot of times the same basic material uh, brought together. And there's a, a final editor that comes back together and sort of puts them all together in a way that is relatively coherent, but he doesn't eliminate the problems, a lot of the problems that are involved, a lot of the contradictions of the doublets that you see. So that it was called source criticism. So you might've heard of it as the documentary hypothesis or the JEDP theory. Um, but there are four different sources that they talk about, um, you know, the Yahwist, the Elohist, um, the priestly source, and then the Deuteronomist. There are other ways to think about 
how the text was brought together, there's sort of an idea that uh, a bunch of little individual stories were brought together. And then as time went by, uh, one editor came by and put an additional layer on. And then later, another editor came by and put another layer on and so on. So um, this sort of supplementary view. And that's how the text grew. But however it is that, you know, we try to explain how we get it in its final form. Essentially, the, the, the main point is that it's not consensus view on this uh, is, is that it's not, you know, one person, Moses, putting together the first five books of the Old Testament, um, but that you have either individual sources or different layers uh, that have been uh, pieced together or layered on top of uh, a text to make it grow into the form that we that we currently have. Hmm. If that made sense. Yeah, that made a lot of sense. I think I understand your view um, very well. Uh, so as we we go into kind of this idea of like Old Testament slavery or servitude, um, most people probably call it slavery. There probably be a few they call it servitude, whatever it is. Um, just just before we dive into a couple of specific passages that I think are quoted a lot. Um, either by Christians who are kind of troubled by these passages or maybe atheists are like, look, see, God's a moral monster or something along those lines. Um, before we get into specific passages, what, in a general sense, when you look at like uh, this idea of slavery in the old Testament, what do you, what do you see going on here? Yeah, there are basically two types of slavery that we see in the ancient world uh, and in the ancient Near East, and particularly uh, coming into the Hebrew Bible, there's 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 not a lot of difference, uh, and that is debt slavery and chattel slavery. So, you know, debt slavery is, um, I you know have a piece of property, maybe I'm renting out that piece of property, or I own the piece of property, and uh, I need to, uh, you know, uh, borrow some grain from someone, take a loan out of grain from someone. Uh, or I need to, you know, but whatever it is that I have to borrow, I have to borrow in order to, you know, make the harvest go and whatever it is. And uh, the person says, okay, well, uh, you know, if if you have a bad harvest year, let's say, and you can't pay that debt back, uh, then uh, you agree to become that individual slave, either as, you know, a, a part of collateral or you know, however, it, however it works out. But you have a debt and the debt needs to be repaid. So in the biblical text, we see a lot of this. Um, so either uh, the head of household, uh, a father can uh, sell himself or he can sell one of his family members, you know, his wife or uh, his daughter or son or something um, into this type of debt servitude. And they serve for six years in the biblical text and then they're set free um, in the seventh year. Now, that changes a little bit when you get into the book of Leviticus, but you know that, that's sort of the basic principles. You have somebody that has debt, and in order to pay off that debt, they go in and serve their debtor, their creditor, uh, for a certain period of time. The other type of slavery that we have is called chattel slavery. So the the difference between debt slavery and chattel slavery is that the chattel slavery is not dependent upon a debt. So um, in debt slavery, if the debt is paid off, then the person goes free. That, you know, constitutes debt slavery. Chattel slavery is not contingent upon that. There is no debt to be paid off, ostensibly. Um, so it doesn't mean that that person, it was impossible for that person to get free. Certainly a master could turn their slave free however they, you know, whenever whenever they wished. But uh, that's the difference is you, you have... Uh, uh, essentially a person is considered property proper, uh, I guess in, in that sense. So there's no, all right, it's, you know, it's been six years or I've paid off this debt of a hundred shekels of silver that I owed you. Now you have to release me. That's, you know, that, that's chattel slavery is that there is no debt that goes along with it. So these two show up in the Hebrew Bible, in the legal passages, um, Mostly what we see in the narratives is a type of debt slavery um, because it's mostly dealing with Israelites uh, when we see it coming up in the in the narrative. But uh, essentially for the Israelites, for most of the legal passages, Israelites are that's restricted to um, debt slavery. So they have to be released after the six year period. 
whereas foreigners, uh, that stipulation isn't, uh, that, that, that law isn't stipulated. Uh, so, you know, the famous passage that I think we're going to talk about, Leviticus 25, mm-hmm. uh, it, that's, that's where you primarily will see chattel slavery, although uh, certainly houseborn slaves are considered chattel uh, because, again, it's not, their slavery is not contingent upon a debt. So, and we can talk about more t- detail on that if you want. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely uh, go into that. I know I was doing like a question and answer and that came up and I know you were there and I hope that I didn't sound dumb, but I haven't, I haven't looked into this that much and I could see you cringing a little bit and no, no. I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to learning from you. Um, oh, it's yeah. good. It's good. Yeah. And bef- before we get into, I'm curious, like, so kind of like a couple aspects to, you talked about these two different uh, ideas of slavery. You got debt slavery and then you have chattel slavery. What in the, um, in ancient Israel and in the ancient Near East, what was more common, um, debt slavery or chattel slavery? Or is there like yeah. a, two, you don't know? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say debt slavery is is very common. Um, <clears throat> again, debt in the ancient world is everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people that are living, many of the people are living sort of on the edge of poverty, right? So, uh Borrowing things from people and going into debt because of it is is incredibly common. You have um, a city called Newsy where uh, we have these contracts uh, from the late second millennium where you see people who are sort of, uh, they're called the Apiru, and um, they're mercenaries, sort of freelance, whatever, people that will do whatever it is that you need them to do. Uh, they come in, and we see that we have the contracts that they sign with uh, more wealthy people that live in this in the city, um, and they say we will uh, serve you for the remainder of your life, uh, and then at that point, um, you know, we'll when you die, we'll bury you, we'll do the mourning rites, you know, whatever it is that needs to happen, and then at that point, we're uh, you know adopted by you, and that means that we get a share of your inheritance or maybe all of the inheritance just depends on what the contract stipulated. But this type of slavery because of poverty uh, is, you know, incredibly common. Um, chattel slavery is also common. Uh, so, so there are houseborn slaves, you know, those, uh, you, you know, you see this in the biblical text where uh, even if a, a, a debt slave um, uh, is given a wife, there in Exodus 21, you see if a, if a debt slave is given a wife by the master and they have children, those are house-born slaves, and they don't go free, right? They're they're the property of the master. And so, you know, we see, we see both of these things in the ancient Near East. Um, it's interesting because the way that it's pictured oftentimes in the legal texts, uh, both the biblical and the, and the wider ancient Near East, is... Uh, I don't want to say a little more utopian, but uh, it's it's probably a lot like it is in in our modern law, you know, where it doesn't always play out that way on the ground, right? So uh, you have we have contracts, for example, of people selling themselves freely, voluntarily into slavery, and then you you find out in some cases they're infants that are selling themselves, mm-hmm. you know, it's not. It's, it's, it's sort of a faux, uh, you know, volition, <laughs> volitional uh, <laughs> agreement. So it's that has an infant going to sell themselves. But um, it, so, you know, in that sense, uh, I think you, you see the demarcation and debt slavery is very, very common, both in the Bible and in the, at least as we see it in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient Near East. So. Yeah. Uh, so what we'll do is there's a couple passages for you guys listening. We're going to dive into just just a couple of passages because we could be here all day, obviously talking about this stuff. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll just kind of read the passage and then I'll just kind of hear your thoughts on what's going on here. Um, and we'll see. I don't know. I'm not really looking, obviously for those of you that have listened to Adhering Apologists before, this isn't a debate. This isn't any sort of like, I'm trying to prove Dr. Josh's views wrong. I'm here to ask him questions and listen. So you'd win, Zach. You'd win in a heartbeat. Because <laughs> I just I just give up and be like, eh, I don't want to do Ancient Near East scholar versus undergraduate student. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know who about that. Uh so we'll we'll dive into Exodus 21 verses one through four. Uh I'm not gonna put up on the screen, but I'm just gonna kind of read it here underneath and then Yeah, Uh, so this says, these are the ordinances that you shall set before them. When you buy a male Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. But in the seventh, he should go out a free person without debt. 
If he, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, then the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. So I think for a lot of people, um, when they're trying to, when they're, when, when they're confused with this text, it's that last part where it talks about um, the idea that the, the wife and these children can't go out when, when this man comes out of freedom. Uh, or goes into freedom. So what are your thoughts on this passage? Yeah, so what we're, you know, what we're looking at essentially is you've got a guy that um, goes into debt to a creditor and becomes a debt slave. So the stipulations for that guy is that he's going to serve six years and then in the seventh, he's going to go out free and his debt, you know, his debt's going to be wiped out. So a lot of times um, in these agreements, without going into like a lot of detail about this, um, the time that you serve doesn't pay off the interest that's accruing on the mm-hmm. debt, right? So it's it becomes a trap in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the law, you know, requires here that uh, everything is covered within that six year period. So the the initial debt and any interest that might that might uh, accrue, it's all wiped out uh, at the end of the six years. Uh, so in that scenario, and of course, this is very common. Um, type of casuistic law, it's it's uh, it's sort of mirroring what we see in the, the wider ancient Near East over in Mesopotamia. You sort of see these types of lists where they say, if this happens and then this happens, and then they have sort of sub-clauses that come off of that. So if a black cat passes in front of you, then you will have a bad day. If a white cat passes in front of you, then this will happen. If a yellow cat passes in front of you, so it, it's going into the different variations of it. So this is what we see here. So the main clause here is that you have a debt slave that's it's, it's a man that's going into debt servitude okay if he goes in when he goes in he's married uh, that means that the 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 situation that was extant the, you know the, the obtaining situation when he went in remains the same when he goes back out so if he came in as a married person when he goes out he goes out as a married person in other words that that the wife didn't doesn't transfer Ownership of the wife doesn't transfer to the the creditor. Uh, however, if while he is serving uh, the master, the master says, uh, "I would I, w- I want you to sexually procreate," um, which is you know within his rights to do, and he gives that debt slave um, uh, a spouse, ostensibly a slave herself, uh, and they have children. At the end of the six years the wife and the kids of that of uh, that sexual union uh, would remain the property of the master. So they, they stay with the creditor. Um, and so then the law, of course, in the passage, you know, following that, it says if hey, there's a, there's a, there's a way that the, the, the husband, the now husband can opt to stay a permanent slave. He becomes a chattel slave at that point is his um, slavery is no longer dependent upon a debt. He has agreed to serve, um, you know, for his life, and uh, he gets to stay with his wife and his children. So that's the sort of the bare bones. What's going on in that passage? It's not in any way uncommon uh, in the ancient Near East. That sort of idea, idea of um, you know the creditor or the master um, having legal rights, ownership rights to um, the the wife or the children of that union. It's it's not uncommon. Um, sort of the norm. So. Okay, uh, so I have a couple questions for you, kind of thinking as we walk through this passage. Uh, so it, the first part is it talks about um, for, for this male Hebrew slave, you know, he goes in for six years and the seventh he comes out free, um, kind of negating the idea of getting trapped into like some sort of like interest thing. Is this a common thing that you see in the ancient Near East where there's some sort of clause where after like five or six or seven or ten or whatever amount of years that they're going to be set free? Yeah, so if you look in the, the laws of Hammurabi, um, it's actually three years. They serve for three years and they go out. Um, so it's it's actually interesting that the, the biblical text presents twice the amount of time. And it seems to be picked up a little bit in Deuteronomy that the you know some of the some of the ramifications for that. But yeah, there's there are some interesting things in the biblical text um that probably should be talked about here. And that is that debt slavery was bad for the economy in the sense that uh you know, the rich would get richer and the poor would get poorer. Mm. Uh, and so that dichotomy would um, would enlarge, I suppose, the gulf would in, in, increase. 
And so one of the things that you see in the ancient Near East is the declaration of remission of debt. And so Hammurabi is famous for it. Um, he has this, um, he declares freedom of debt. So debt slaves, loans, those sorts of things, they, they're, they're freed. Uh, that, now, there are certain things that it doesn't uh, extend to, but debt slaves and loans and those sorts of things uh, of the people in the under his jurisdiction in the in the land, uh, their debt is remitted, and it, it, it's sort of to, you know, obviously boost morale of the of the of his of his country of his, you know, his people, um, but it sort of puts things the economy back on a, a productive and more productive. Uh, scale, so you you see this in the biblical text, but it it ultimately becomes sort of cyclical. So you see in Leviticus twenty five, it's every fiftieth year, the jubilee year. You know, this is when this freedom is to be declared, which is interesting in and of itself. We don't have to go into why, but um, but this sort of thing, yeah, it's not it's not uncommon um, in the ancient Near East, and uh, it's one of the reasons that I think sometimes when you look at the biblical text, they seem to be in our in our 21st century lens from through that lens it seems to be a little bit better uh and if you actually dig down into the ancient near eastern texts and and uh the way the 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 laws are presented there sometimes they seem a little bit you know better it's just um i think it's sort of a wash in the end but anyway Mm -hmm. go ahead rambling you're good man you're totally good uh so the second question i'm wondering is it talks about how um the, the wife and the children they don't they don't come out of slavery um when this man leaves in this passage according to this passage so do do, do they have any way to get out of slavery are they are they kind of like uh slaves for life in a sense um with these people in exodus 25 yeah so the passage isn't really dealing with it um the laws are focused on that on that male debt slave uh, so one of the things that we see is that slavery oftentimes, uh, because it's a way of life, because it's so common, it's it's not something that um, think about I'm thinking of the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, Kohelet, mm-hmm. you know, where he talks about in chapter two, he says, you know, look at all the the houseborn slaves that I have and the slaves that I've purchased, you know, I, I, I have all this property. I have all this cattle. Um, it's not seen as a bad thing that he has them. Right. You know, uh, you also see this, uh, of course, with Abraham, um, Abraham has these houseborn slaves and those that are purchased with silver. Um, so it's sometimes I think difficult for us to wrap our brains around because we we understand slavery as an atrocity, right? It's something that's, uh, and I think that we see the same thing in um, some of the ways that war was carried out. And we see this in the way the children were disciplined. There are lots of things, uh, the way that women were treated, um, you know, those sorts of things in the ancient world and in the, in, in, in the biblical texts, you know, we, we see these things as incredibly problematic ethically. And it's a different point of view that they had. I'm in no way trying to justify that point of view, uh, but it's it's one that I don't think that there was a moral, and there wasn't moral progress, there wasn't a moral development um, that we have today. And so um, when we look at homeborn slaves or we look at uh, slaves that are a considered chattel, uh, it's not necessarily the point of the text often to try to get at how they get free because that's not that's not really something that's um, that's just not something that's considered, I don't think. Uh, so it's incredibly common to have houseborn slaves. It's incredibly common for uh, I mean if you, if you look at that passage in Exodus 21, uh, following right on the heels of it, you have a female, a daughter that's being sold into slavery as an ama. Right, she's being sold as a female slave, and and she's she's being sold ostensibly for um, sexual production rights. I mean, it's it's what she's doing, uh, and so there has to be a, a a protection that's given to her. Uh, whereas with the man, there's no taboo that's really associated with him being used for sexual production, uh, because you know there there is no. Um, eh, He's not considered deflowered, right? Or his his uh, 
his worth is not diminished once he's had sexual intercourse. Whereas with a woman, uh, definitely the case. I mean, you see that everywhere in the biblical text. Um, so, so there are protections put in place that if she's brought on as a concubine or if she's used for sexual reproduction, uh, now she's she her status has changed. She she she's not strictly a slave anymore in that sense. Um, she's elevated. Her rights are are uh, developed, and so she can't just be sold into slavery somewhere else, or she can't have her uh, you know rights diminished. Uh, she has to either be allowed to be redeemed. Not that not that any of these things are good things. Uh, you, you know, ultimately, I think they're still bad, uh, but there are still protections that are put in place because of that. Um, diminishment in her value. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, good stuff, man. Uh, so we'll go, we'll go to the other passage that we're kind of specifically going to dive into. And this is another famous one, probably one of the, probably the more talked about ones in, mm-hmm. in the world, uh, Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. So it says, as for your male and female slaves, slaves who you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule um, one one over another ruthlessly. So mm-hmm. when, when you look at that passage, what are kind of your like general thoughts as you look at this passage? So I think that those verses have to be understood um, in light of the rest of the passage, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that it's good. What I'm going to say, uh, you know, as, as from a, from an ethical standpoint, I don't think it's good. Um, but I think it, in order to really understand what it is that's going on, it's really important that we understand the rest of the passage. So Leviticus 25 is you know part of the holiness code and it's dealing with, um, for the for the first portion of it, it's dealing with what happens to this landed property. So everybody in Israel is given landed property. Not everybody, but um, you know, the Levites aren't. But uh, most of the tribes are are given land. They're distributed this land, and it's their land um, in perpetuity. So uh, every clan, you know, has their own. Every tribe has their own. That sort of thing. So, um, what happens if somebody becomes so poor? that they have to sell their land, right? It's the one thing that they have that they can negotiate with and they sell it. What happens? Well, there's this, what you what you didn't want to have happen uh, is what you see in the later prophets uh, or in the prophets, you know, where, where it talks about uh, you you build house against house, right? Uh, the, the rich are are joining house to house. In other words, they're, they're growing their, their property uh, they're buying and buying, and then they're taking advantage of the poor. It's what they're doing, uh, and they're doing that because what the what is it that the poor have in Israel? Well, they got their land, and that's it. And so they 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 give it up. And so now these the, the rich are becoming richer, and they're extending their their property. And God is saying, "Why are you doing this? This is a terrible thing to do to your brethren." So this is sort of the point in Leviticus twenty five. So every fiftieth year. All the land is to be returned, Boom, goes back, right? So if I have have some property and you're very wealthy, Zach, and, and, and I take out a loan from you and I can't pay it back, you have every right to my land uh, until the 50th year. And in the 50th year, it goes back to me. It reverts to me. And in that way, um, you continue to have people... You know, the point of of so many of these passages is to have the nation of Israel be set apart uh, and be secure amongst the other nations, right? So the way that you do that is to have them remain economically viable. And this was the point. It's a little utopian, but whatever, it's the point of the text. So because of that, you know, after you see the land getting reverted in the Jubilee, then it starts to say, okay, so what about other circumstances? where a fellow Israelite becomes poor. So what if they, so they sold their land, it goes back to them. Well, what if they become so poor that they, you know, um, sell these other possessions or ultimately they have to sell themselves to you? What is it that happens? Well, if you look at Exodus 21 or you look at Deuteronomy 15, the two major uh, legal passages that deal with 
slavery before Leviticus 25, you can treat a fellow Israelite, a fellow Hebrew, as an Eved, as a slave, right? It's perfectly fine. They become a debt slave and they serve you for six years. Um, it develops a little bit in Deuteronomy 15. You know, in, in Exodus 21, when the when the servant, when the slave goes out, they just go out, no more debt, right? In Deuteronomy 15, you have something similar, but the text goes on to say, not only do they go out with no debt, but you also give them a bunch of stuff give much of grain and wine and, you know, supplies so that ostensibly so that they don't fall back into debt. Uh, and again, it's trying to keep the nation of Israel solvent and, and thriving, but they're still slaves. They're still debt slaves. That's their status. When you get to Leviticus 25, the story changes. And now the law says, no, no more. Can you treat them as evids? You have to treat them as called a hired worker. Right, so now they're paid wages. Uh, they're kept until the 50th year. So it's no more this six years and then they go out. So it's sort of a, maybe a trade-off there. Um, but they're not treated as evids anymore. They're not treated as slaves. They have to be treated as hired workers. And the text goes to great lengths to say, you can't do this to the fellow Israelites, to your fellow Hebrews, because look, you they're my servants. They were slaves down in Egypt. Uh, you know, that no more are they going to go back into that, that you can't treat them as slaves. So then you get to verse 44, and es essentially the passage is, is turning and saying, th the obvious question that's coming up, I think, in the passage is, well, now, wait a minute. If we can't treat Israelites as Eveds, our fellow Israelites as Eveds, where are we getting our Eveds from? Where are we getting our slaves? Uh, and the text has an interesting structure there, actually. It fronts, that anyway. So as for your male and female slaves, you will get them from the nations around you, from the goyim, right? Um, and you will also get them from the, and that word is kind of tough to, to translate, people debate it, but it's like tenant farmers. It's foreigners who are living in the land, who are mm. renting out property, and they probably go into debt and you take them. That's where you're getting your slaves from. You're getting them from probably debt slaves, mostly that are coming from foreign countries being sold to you. Uh, and those debt slaves that you take from inside of the land, I don't think it's necessarily going into specifics about that, but um, it's foreigners. Foreigners is the key. Uh, those that are non-Israelites, you can take them as efforts and you can you know, pass them on to become your achuzah, they become your property which that's what that word means. It means property. It's the same word that's used uh, to, to talk about the landed property. In fact, that's how it's almost always used. This is the only place actually uh, where it's it's not used to talk about land, landed property. Um, and so it, it says, these will be your achuzah. These will be your property. Uh, you will pass them on. You can pass them on as inheritance. Uh, they will serve you forever. Pass them on to your children. Uh, you may serve, I mean, you may treat the foreigners in this in this way, but emphatically, emphatically, the text says, you must never treat your fellow Israelites with this word that you translated or the, the text you had translated ruthlessly. And that word perech there is the same word that's used to describe the conditions of slavery that the Israelites went through in Exodus chapter one. Um, so the, the Egyptians treated the Israelites with perech. Uh, they treated them ruthlessly, right? Um, and so it, it doesn't just, it's its sort of a broad application here. It doesn't just mean that you keep them permanently. That's in it, but it's more than that. It's its to treat, um, the word has to do with violence. It has to do with um, severely, severity, grinding. It's, in, in other words, it's not a, um, it's, it's, it's bad. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not something that you want to, you want to have happen to you. And God is saying, you're not going to treat the Israelites in this way. I wouldn't, I don't know that I would say that this is consensus. And then Zach, I'll stop talking. Cause I've been talking for a while. Yeah, you're but, all good. You're all good. Um, it's, I don't know that I would say it's consensus. There are some very good scholars that would make an argument. And I think it's probably a pretty good argument that the way the text is set up there in 44 to 46, that when it says you will not treat your fellow Israelites with perech, 
that by implication, it's it's okay to do that to the foreigners. Now that's debated. Um, I think it. I I don't think it's necessary to think of this as a bad thing for the foreigners. Uh, but, but it could go that far, um, to say that, but I mean, the things that I think we can walk away with about this passage is that Israelites, no more slaves can't take them as slaves anymore. If you're going to get slaves, you have to get them from the foreigners, either those that are coming from the nations around you or those that are living in your land, probably that have gone into debt slavery. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of value information you bring up there. So I have kind of a few questions as you were going through. Uh, the first one kind of similar to the last passage. How does this compare to like other ancient Near East systems? Like this kind of like law, uh, is, it, is it consistent with other nations in the ancient Near East? Yeah, I mean, so part of the problem is we do have, there's there's problems with these these law codes. Uh, they're not really codes, but, you know, these, these lists of laws that we have. Uh, we have several of them. Right, and we have them from several different periods, and we have a lot of legal contracts. Uh, but it's it's sometimes difficult to kind of get at, in reality, what was what was going on on the ground, and maybe what was even considered legal practice at the time. Sometimes it's difficult to get at. Uh, that being said, no, I mean this is not terribly different. Um, one thing that is interesting about the biblical text, I think. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'm not I'm not a legal specialist, right? That mm -hmm. is a whole subfield in uh, in both uh, Hebrew Bible scholarship and in uh, the ancient Near Eastern scholarship. But um, uh, yeah, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, it's it, it, one of the things that I think is is probably interesting about the the biblical text is there's a big focus on treating the your fellow countrymen a certain way. Um, not that that's absent, uh, certainly citizens in the ancient world had, had certain, uh, rights that the others didn't, or, um, uh, were, were in some cases treated differently, but that's not always the case either. I mean, you see it in the biblical texts, right? You can see that the gear, the, the, the resident alien is brought in in many ways and can worship and, you know, but there's still a separation that, that exists for the resident alien. He's not, he's not completely taken in and certainly for the uh the nokri the foreigner um a different type of foreigner you know that the different things apply to them so it's not like this great homogeny that we see um or homogeneity that we see um when it comes to the people as a whole but in you know in uh, when we think about the ways that foreigners were 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 looked after some passages some texts will tell you a, a for i mean a citizen in any other nation is uh sorry how does it go a foreigner a citizen in any other city is a slave i think is how it goes hmm. uh so essentially a citizen is really only protected when they're in their area of citizenship when they leave and they're somewhere else they're very vulnerable and so you have laws that protect foreigners so for example um i think it's in the the, the, the laws of ashnuna um, it talks about, uh, if a foreigner, three, there are different types of foreigners that are talked about. If they sell beer, they come into the city and they sell beer, the, the, the barmaid, the, the one that's buying it from them and then reselling it has to buy it from them at the going rate. She can't like, you know, try to trick them and sell it at a, a lower rate to them. Oh yeah, we only sell this for a dollar here. So that's all I'm giving you for it. Um, if, if she's selling it for $10, you know, she has to, she has to give it to them at the going rate. So, or sell it from them at the going rate. So there are protections that are put in place. Um, so I, in the end, I don't really think there's a great deal of difference between what we see in the ancient Near East in general and what we see in the biblical text. Um, where I think there's development is in the prophets. So when you look at the prophetic text, there does seem to be a, a much more developed sense of care for the poor. Um, that that you don't really see uh, in other places in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, but again, that's a different sort of sort of a different thing because the prophets are not, you know, the the, the legal text. They're they're distinct. So, um, yeah, I think there's not a great deal of difference between those two sets: the the Hebrew Bible, and the wider ancient Near East. Hmm. Okay. Um. Totally just blanked on what my second question was. Uh, I may come back to it, but uh, the, the third question I was going to ask you uh, is um, 
it talks about the idea that uh, these people who are who are not Hebrews uh, could could be slaves for forever for life. Um, oh, just got my second question back. So actually, we'll just hop to that first. Apologize for my kind sure, of. No, you're good. Um, you're good. Uh, so a lot of Christian Christians or people um, may argue that kind of like this idea of like. Um, an eternal sense of slavery for non-Hebrews uh, may actually be protective for them, might, might protect them. Do you, do you think there's any truth to that or like anything along those lines? You know, I think, yeah, I think that the thing you have to wrestle with. So if I could kind of maybe paint the picture of what I think uh, mm-hmm. the apologetic that, that, that you, you heard or you're referring to is that you have foreigners that are living in the land. They don't have any land of their own because they're Israelites and the only the Israelites have land in Israel. And so, um, you know, they become poor and what else are they going to do, right? They're dependent upon somebody else. Um, you know, there, there are some issues with that. Uh, first of all, if you just continue in, in chapter uh, or in verse 47, the next set of uh, regulations deals with the Toshav, the, the tenant farmer who has become incredibly wealthy, right? Uh, so, uh, and wealthy enough that he's able to buy Hebrew slaves himself, right? So this idea that, you know, the poor foreigner that, you know, is can't do anything because he's away from his homeland, it isn't really the reality, even in the set of legal texts themselves. Um, so that's, that's problematic. Uh, also, the idea that it's, that it's okay to stay, like it's good to stay in slavery, um, certainly you could turn to passages like, uh, Exodus 21 that we talked about and see, well, I love my master or Deuteronomy 15. I love my master. I love my wife and children. I want to stay with them. So they get the ear pierced. The, the problem, excuse me, is Leviticus 25 because Leviticus 25 makes it incredibly clear. Evid bad, right? Slavery, not, not a good thing. It's like, it's like paying interest on a loan. Right, I don't think it's dealing with it from a moral standpoint, but I think it's dealing from it from a dealing with it from a practical standpoint. Like, if I charge you interest on a loan, that's not like morally wrong for me to do, but it's not good for you, right? It's like you don't want that. You don't want a high interest rate, or so you don't want interest being charged to you. You prefer to just have the loan with no interest, right? Um, and I think this, I think slavery is probably falling into the same category in in some ways in Leviticus 25, but clearly the passage is saying um, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. You can't keep them like this anymore. So slavery essentially at its heart is not a good thing. So, um, you know, the idea that, uh, the idea that it would be a a good thing to stay in slavery, I don't think really holds um, one because the, the, the resident, uh, the tenant farmer has the ability, even in this foreign land, to do very, very well. Uh, but secondly, if if it were some, if it were strictly about, um, we know that slavery is bad, but but we, we God needed to use it because it would have been better for the people because they would have starved, um, or or something like that. God shows both in Deuteronomy 15 and in Leviticus um, 25 supernatural intervention to stay the economy, right? To provide for the economy. And so that being said, if in fact one were to argue that slavery, yeah, God knew that slavery was a like a moral bad thing, but it was a necessary evil for the foreigners, um, I think sort of cuts God off at the knees, even in the passage itself, because God is showing supernatural provision, promising supernatural provision, particularly in Leviticus 26, the very next chapter. I mean, it's all about uh, supernatural provision, but it's for the Israelites, right? So um, to say that 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 God needed it, or that it was, you know, the economy would have fallen apart, or it would have been better for the people, I think those are the problems that you have to wrestle with. Yeah, a lot of good food for thought there. Kind of the last question I have uh, regarding this passage is. Um, for the for the non-Hebrew, is there a sense that this slavery is uh, eternal for their lives? I mean, obviously, that's what the, the passage kind of implicitly says. But is there any sort of like way out of this, or do you think this is kind of like a final end statement that if you're a non-Hebrew um, and you're a slave, you're kind of just a slave for the rest of your life, uh, unless your master obviously would like release you or something along those lines? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer to that is to to again couch it in the rest of the chapter. So the, the Leviticus twenty five is sort of the jubilee chapter, right? So every fiftieth year, which you know, for someone living in antiquity, fifty mm. years is a <laughs> long time, right? Uh, so it's not like it's a short stay. If somebody comes in at the beginning of the, the jubilee cycle, it's like, mm. damn it. Um, so uh, that that being said. Uh, I think that what the passage is is getting at is the Hebrews, the, the Israelites, are set free in the fiftieth year. They're not allowed to be kept as slaves. They're allowed to be kept as, um, you know, hard treated as hired workers, but not as slaves proper. Um, what Leviticus twenty five forty four to forty six is saying is that they are not subject to the jubilee release, mm -hmm. and which you know. I think explicitly says you, know, you could keep them. Olam is what it is in the Hebrew. So, you know, Olam is like Kila Olamas Chasdo is for his mercy endures forever. That's the mm -hmm. refrain. So it's La Olam. Uh, so you know, in the passage, it's like in perpetuity. It's in the future with no end in sight, sort of thing. But I think it's contrasting. Uh, the release of the Jubilee, and it's saying they're not subject to the release of the Jubilee. In other words, uh, that the the owner, the Israelite owner, does not have to turn loose. Uh, but the fact that it goes on explicitly to say things like, you can pass them on as inheritance to your children, uh, you know, uh, and they will be your slaves, la olam, they are forever. I mean, clearly, the idea in the passage is that this is a perm This is chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the couple passages that I sent you that we'll look at. Uh, so now we'll just go to some more general questions regarding slavery. And I don't know how far we'll get. I mean, don't worry about. We don't have to worry about time really. Um, so how how does uh, you've hit on this a little bit, but in a general sense, how does slavery in the Old Testament compare to like other slavery systems that you see in the ancient Near East? Um, you know, it's a complicated question mm -hmm. in that you don't always have sort of one-to-one -one correspondence of situations. You know, that being said, um, some of the things that are, are clearly paralleled is uh, there's protection of debt slaves in both the ancient Near East and in um, the Hebrew Bible. So for example, uh, some of the protections seem a little weird, right? Uh, if you if you if you talk about Exodus 21, often the conversation turns to verses 20 and 21, right, where it talks about if, uh, if a man beats his male or female slave with a wooden rod um, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be punished. Whatever punished means there probably means to be killed, but it's tough. Um, but verse 21, uh, if he survives a day or two, then he's not to be punished because he is his silver, right? He's his, his, his money, his property. Um, that seems weird, right? It doesn't seem like a protection, but it is. It's a, it's, it's a protection in a very foreign to us sort of disciplinary uh, or uh, teaching scenario uh, for the slave. You know, slaves were expected to be beaten, right, in the ancient world. You see in the book of Proverbs, certainly you see it here in Exodus 21. Slaves were expected to be beaten with a wooden rod. Um, and because of that, a protection is set in place so that uh, they're not abused. <laughs> now, uh, when we say abuse, we mean something very different. We would, I mean, I would say beating someone with a wooden rod is abuse, right? Mm -hmm. That would not have fallen under the abuse category uh, in the ancient world. And the same is true in the ancient Near East. So, uh, you know, it talks about if, a, it, I can't remember exactly what the, uh, the um, thing is that the slave, I think if the slave says, uh, you are not my master, uh, you can, you can, cut the ears. I can't remember how the law goes, but there are certain things that you can do, but only after the judge uh, that, that is deciding the case says it's okay. You have several passages like this where you, the, the owner, I think there's this misconception, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient Near East, that if someone is property, that means they're a beat up old couch, 
right? They're the, the, the master can do whatever they want with them. And it's just simply not the case, either in the Hebrew Bible or in the ancient Near East, right? There, there are rules, there are laws that govern uh, the treatment of slaves, which is period. They have certain rights. And that seems very strange to us. How can a slave have rights? Um, I suspect the same is probably true in antebellum slavery, but I'm not an antebellum slavery specialist at all. So I don't know. But anyway, um, so you, you, you see in both places uh, regulations being set in place so that the master can't abuse his slaves um, as they would define abuse. And, uh, you know, slaves in, in the ancient Near East uh, could own property. It, was, it wasn't really considered theirs. It was like a peculium. But, I mean, they could, they could do business on behalf of the master. They, they led pretty good lives in some cases, uh, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. right? But they're still property. They're still mm-hmm. property and um, they're owned. And uh, so that's, you know, it's, there are a lot of similarities between them. Again, I think where you see the development in the biblical text is the treatment of fellow countrymen, the, the treatment of the Israelites. I think that gets developed in a way that I, I don't think you really see in the ancient Near East. Yeah. A uh, couple more questions here as we start to wrap things up. Um, Obviously, this is kind of maybe more of a subjective question. Obviously, I mean, we obviously don't think slavery is a good thing. Um, but uh, this idea of like, is is the slavery that we see in the in the Bible um, that that you read of in the Old Testament? Do you think it's maybe like a better system than the ancient Near East or a worse system, or is it similar? Or I mean, it's kind of it might be a subjective question. So you just don't know. Like, what what are your thoughts on how the system compares? And like, a, oh, it's better or worse than uh, what's around it. No, I mean, I think at its essentially it's about the same again, um, because they have a similar legal tradition that they're pulling from. Part of the problem is trying to determine if what you see, for example, in Deuteronomy 15 or Exodus 21, uh, was a law that was written, uh, beforehand, or is it something that's sort of constructed in a utopian sense? I mean, certainly we see in places like Jeremiah 34, Nehemiah 5. Um, that it's not really being practiced in the way that the law hopes it should be practiced, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the Israelite slaves are not being set free. Uh, but on paper, you know, in the in the in the legal system, I, I'd say that for the Israelites, it's probably a little bit better. Uh, again, because if it's if it were practiced, if it were actually carried out, assuming the reality of the Christian God and that, you know, Mm -hmm. he would carry out the things that he said, uh, the people would be provided for, um, supernaturally and they would have, um, uh, slaves would be able to be provided with all of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, material, uh, goods as they, as they went out from slavery and God would supernaturally provide for the creditors that gave, uh, gave up those, those goods. Um, yeah, but it, as it, on the whole, you know, you, it's a similar system. It's a similar system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll close with this kind of question and we'll just wrap things up. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of put us, push the idea that they see God as some sort of like moral monster or something like that's what Paul K- Copian wrote the book on. Mm-hmm. He's got a moral monster or say God is evil or something along those lines. So it's, obviously it, this, claim doesn't just go to like old testament slavery they'll look at like commands for what people would call genocide or all, all kinds of, there's there's so many factors in this question um but i think it's kind of a good way to wrap things up here mm-hmm. so it just just if this uh the christian god the god that i believe in exists w- would you consider this god like a, a moral monster or evil or something along those lines so if if I were to go back 15 years, let's say, go back to sort of my fundamentalist evangelical days and look at uh, the text as I understood it then, um, and assuming that sort of um, verbal plenary inspiration of the text and that the text is inerrant down to the very, you know, grammatical forms, um, and we have in the biblical texts essentially what was in the autographs in that closed system. Uh, I think that while there, while the, 
the narrative, for example, let's just go outside of slavery for a second to sort of couch this. The narrative of the flood story goes to great lengths to say that it's, you know, God is perfectly justified in bringing about this, this disaster, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, if you assume all of those things, uh, then you have to, by the nature of the text, to some degree, say, well, if all of that is true, uh, then God, to some degree, is justified. There are, of course, still problems with that because the text isn't dealing with the innocence of, you know, those children that had not, you know, those babies that were drowned in the flood, right? So um, I still think that there would be problems with that. So I don't know that I would say, uh, first of all, that's a very difficult position for me to now think, mm -hmm. uh, for me to hold to, to do an internal critique on. I, I think that in that sense, there are far more mitigating circumstances um, than, than outside of that interpretive model. But I still think there are lots of problems. For example, I think it's, I don't know that I would call God a moral monster. Uh, I think that God's morality fit the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that I would be a moral monster if I continue to uphold that ethical system. Uh, that's what I would say. It, calling calling anyone a moral monster in that period, I think is a little problematic to a certain degree because the example that I like to give is if we, if I were to go back 50 years to when beating children, spanking children with switches, you know, was was commonplace, there's no way that I would call a father immoral 50 years ago for beating his kid with a switch because I think immorality requires a decision, right? Uh, to do something that is immoral. And I'm not an ethical specialist or anything, so I could be wrong about that. But I don't know that I would characterize them as immoral. I would say that ethically they hadn't developed. They hadn't come to realize that beating a kid with a switch is actually not a good thing. Right? So, um, I, I, th I think that the biblical texts are a product of their time and at the ethical system that was uh, obtaining at the, at that time is it's very consistent with it. Um, if I were to try to say that God is the, you know, the moral ground of all being uh, or his, you know, his nature is the, you know, that which, that which grounds my morality and then tried to, I think I would end up in the same place that many people end up in to say, well, I've got to somehow figure out a way that slavery isn't so bad because how can a loving and just God uh, who is moral say that it's okay to keep foreigners permanently when today I know that to be an immoral thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I probably didn't answer your question quite as succinctly as I should have. No, um, you're, I wanted a yes or no right. answer and you give me that. No. Oh, <laughs> no. Right. Oh, just died. Sorry, hang on just a second, Zach. I'm sorry. No, you're all good. Um, no, I appreciate your honesty. I don't think everything has to fit into like perfect answers and stuff. So I totally appreciate um, your answer. You, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Um, uh, we're starting to wrap things up here kind of as we get to the end. And Dr. Josh is figuring out um, some, some headphone issues if you just joining us. Can you hear me, Dr. Josh? Sorry. Hang on just a second. I'm switching. You're all good. Don't uh, worry about it. Mm. Okay. There we go. Okay. Um, so this was kind of be like, that's kind of the end of the questions. Um, so just like uh, wrap things up. If people want to know more about you, what you guys are doing, how can they follow you and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So digitalhammurabi.com is our website. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this the last time I was on, but we just got nonprofit status uh, for our, for our scholarship programs. We have a scholarship program that we run, and it's called Humans Against Poor Scholarship HAPS. And uh, we have started a new scholarship program. So what we do is uh, every uh, every spring we have PhD candidates that are uh, enrolled in uh, ancient Near Eastern programs doing Egyptology or archaeology or Hebrew Bible or Assyriology. 
and they come on and they make a pitch for their summer project that they're going to do. And uh, if uh, the, the people that donate from our audience on Patreon or one-time donation, they all get a vote and they get to vote for who gets the scholarship and whoever wins. We gave away three scholarships last year and three scholarships this year, $2,000 each. So uh, we've given away $12,000 thus far. Um, and we just uh, started a new scholarship called Black Scholars Matter, which is for undergraduate students who are juniors or seniors who are uh, interested in going into the ancient Near East, uh, an ancient Near Eastern graduate studies program. And so what we do is we, uh, we fund them to go to one of these conferences uh, where uh, a- annual conferences where scholars meet and give papers, that sort of thing. Um, so we provide for them to go. So uh, yeah, if you go to digitalhammurabi.com, you can see all that stuff. Our YouTube channel is Digital Hammurabi, uh, but there are links everywhere in all our different places if you're interested in in, uh, in giving to that. Uh, probably that personally, the place that we that we get the most support because uh, we don't take anything from the the scholarship fund, uh, any overhead or anything. So any money that we make personally to like buy microphones or whatever, um, it mostly comes from our book sales. So if, if anybody's interested in helping us out, you know, we have a Patreon, but, uh, if you buy a book, you know, we, we, uh, we have this one, which is did the old Testament endure slavery. And we have another one called, um, learn to read ancient Sumerian, which is if you're interested in learning Sumerian, it's uh, like a beginner's guide to it, but that, that provides us because uh, we, we publish them. So, uh, yeah, that's how you can find us and support us if you want. Yeah. Awesome stuff, man. It's been, I've really enjoyed uh, you answering my questions and taking this time. Um, yeah, cool. thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you having me on again. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. All right. Have a good one, everyone. See you later.